are listening to a podcast from The National. Property and shares. The two things that investors like to look at. This week and next, both those asset classes are in focus. This week we had Cityscape Global, the big property exhibition in Dubai. And next week we'll look ahead to the Middle East Investor Relations Associations Conference, where hundreds of delegates from publicly listed companies buy-side investors, sell-side analysts, regulators, exchanges will get together to discuss how capital markets are maturing. This is the Business Extra podcast. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. We're coming to you from the, the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. Let's begin with Cityscape. And uh, let's hear a little bit from Nikhil's chairman, Ali Luta, who we spoke to at the conference this week. So we think there is really serious inquiries and serious purchaser and users are buying and we are selling more than last summer. Most of our location is really for uh, high middle class and uh, you know high end like Palm Jumeirah. Our location is prime location and we want to develop them at the right price and sell them at the right price. Uh, joining me in the studio is Sermit Khan, company and markets editor for The National, who was down at the Cityscape exhibition on the first couple of days. Um, Sermit, good to have you with us. Thank you very much. Good to be on the show. We were just listening to Nikhil chairman, Ali Luter, who was quite bullish about sales down at the show in Dubai um, and about the market in general. Uh, what was the mood amongst developers uh, at Cityscape this year? Well, I would say both for buyers and sellers, uh, it was a win-win situation. Footfall was definitely higher. Uh, and that was simply due to the fact that uh, the buy authorities have allowed floor sales at Cityscape, which hasn't been the case uh, for many, many years. And if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, it hasn't been allowed since uh, 2008. I actually have been stopped uh, a couple of times in the hallways, people asking me, are you looking to buy properties, which hasn't been the case, you know. Uh, so, yeah, there was definite uh, enthusiasm from the buyers and the sellers. Uh, from investor standpoint, I would say every conceivable option on the table under one roof. So it, it was a matter of basically hopping from one stand to another, making your uh, investment decisions. And from the developer's side, uh, I, would take, I would say it was previously the case of taking the leads maturing them, following the uh, the buyers. So it wasn't the case this year. It was a simple deposit, and you grab the business on the spot. And what type of buyers are we talking about? Well, you have basically your two types of buyers. Uh, one is your investor who is looking for yield, who is in for the long haul. And then you have uh, your uh, end users, basically, who want, to, who want to use the apartment for long-term residence as well. And uh, we spoke to developers, and they are saying that uh, uh, interest for both of them was uh, pretty much uh, robust. And, okay, we've got the end users who ultimately want to live in these properties or keep them until they're finished and, and maybe rent them out, for example. But the, the other classification of buyer, the investor, are they realistic about their returns? Because I, I wonder if we've seen quite a bit of interest in buying off plan, from, particularly from the blue chip developers. You're talking Emar, Aldar, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but are these guys buying on the hope that they'll still be able to flip it 10, 15, 20% onwards? Is that, is that really the thinking still? I don't think flipping is, is, is basically a possibility at the moment. Flipping is basically you uh, buy a property and you quickly sell it for, for more profit. So there are rules against that. So you can't really do that. And I would say speculation is, is something that you can, you, can, you can talk about, but speculation is not happening in this market. Yields are kind of rental yields, that is, uh, are sort of under pressure at the moment. And uh, value of prices are also a bit of, you know, on the on the softer side, and it's all because of the you know slower economic growth on the back of uh, lower oil prices. It's it's very difficult to find either a speculator or a flipper in this market. So yeah, these are the people who are in for the for the long haul, looking at you know five, seven, eight, ten percent rental yields and some sort of uh, appreciation in the value of the property. And. Uh, Picking up on, on that, does that mean that this focus from, from a lot of developers on mid-market slash affordable is a consequence of the fact that really it's more about the end-user investor now that is coming into the UAE property scene? 
Mid-market is a segment that hasn't been looked at a lot in the past, I would say. Uh, it was, you know, uh, upscale properties, really premium properties that the developers had looked on. Uh, and if you look at some of the analyst reports, they have actually highlighted that this, this is one segment that you should look at. Uh, if you don't have enough properties in the mid-market sector, you are actually losing out the buyers in, uh, in 25 to 30,000 dirhams monthly salary class, which is basically, you know, 50, 45 percent of, uh, of the buyers. So, yeah, that's, that's something that they are looking at now. Uh, if you look at, uh, at Allar, for example, which has actually come to, to Cityscape after seven years of, uh, of gap, uh, they have launched two properties mid-market in, within a span of less than six months. And we spoke to their uh, chief development officer yesterday, and they have plans to launch uh, another big one next year in Abu Dhabi. If you look at uh, uh, Union Properties, for example, they launched their uh, $8 billion, their master plan, Motor City Development. They are also highlighting uh, mid-market sector. And if you look at Azizis and the others of the world, they are all looking at, at mid-market. So it's, it's kind of a buzzword at the moment. And, and so that's kind of the trend, and, and that's where the developers are positioning themselves in general. Um, it, it's sort of, if I, if I go back to sort of mood and sentiment, um, many years ago, before the financial crisis, Cityscape was all about glitz and glamour and kind of outdoing everyone. So it, it's, it's, it seems to be more sustainable. Do you feel for the overall property sector, we're in a, we're in a place that is a little bit more sustainable going forward? It is. It is. It has matured a lot. But then you you still see, you know, sort of uh, the the incentives that were given. Uh, some of them, for example, you know, a developer is 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 happy to be locked into a property uh, about 40, 45 percent, 50 percent of the payment, even after delivery. So that hasn't been the case. It's something that that people are are actually not very happy about. You know, the analysts. Uh, we're looking at the health of the of the sector, but generally speaking, yes, uh, it has matured a lot. And uh, in terms of mood, again, mid market coming back to it, we have seen um, uh, queues of people uh, at Aldar. Aldar actually started with uh, with three hundred units, one building of Water's Edge uh, property, which they launched uh, earlier this month, two point four billion dirhams, and. Due to the demand, they actually increased uh, the number of units that they released, and they sold about 437 uh, uh, units and raised 400 million dirhams in three days of sales, which just tells you, mid-market, there's a lot of interest for that. So there's appetite, and but also um, the market's much more competitive than it has been because it is a buyer's market as opposed to a seller's. It is. And I think people have and, and developers have realized that they, they have realized that they have to leave some upside on the table for the buyers. It's, it's not like, you know, that the, the, it's, it's not the flipping days that, that you can ask whatever you want to ask from a buyer and the buyer is going to take it and he's going to flip and he's still going to make money. No, it's the market where the buyer is going to look at what is the, the, the rate of return on his uh, investments. And if there's not enough, they're not going to uh, they're gonna, uh, going to opt for that. We spoke with the CEO of uh, Jumeirah Gulf Estate, and uh, his point was that the market has matured, and developers have realized that they have to leave some upside on the table for the for the buyers. And anybody who comes up with the right product, and anybody who comes up with the right package, with right upside for the buyers, is going to succeed. And doesn't that mean that, you know, because there's that competition, because they have to leave uh, something on the table for investors, as you put it, that, that the overall sector needs to rationalize better? Uh, what, what's the chances of, of some consolidation going on? And, and are developers, are we likely to see some mergers going on between developers? We have heard about uh, consolidation back in 2008 financial crisis that the property sector would see some consolidation, but it actually didn't happen. We didn't see the first proper consolidation until uh, Aldar merged with Suru, very, very successful merger. Uh, we have seen consolidation in Abu Dhabi's uh, financial market. Uh, and now 
we are seeing some real moves to, to property sector as well. We have a deal on the boil now. Uh, Ishraq property is, uh, is, is trying to merge with uh, Reem Investments. It's a deal that is still subject to a regulatory note. And uh, Ishraq uh, will issue new shares uh, to Reem Investments. And in turn, they will take over its uh, entire business and assets. So that's one thing on the boil. And we spoke with the uh, with chairman of Union Properties, uh, Nasser bin Yusuf, and he has hinted that his company is open for uh, merger and acquisition uh, uh, opportunities. Uh, it's one real sign of companies actually looking at it. Uh, we spoke to the R CEO as well, another uh, Dubai listed company. And the gentleman said that it makes sense when uh, when there are common interests of the shareholders, uh, but his company is actually not looking at uh, at any other merger options at the moment. Uh, but yeah, there's definite uh, definite move. Uh, there's definite uh, sense that uh, developers can benefit from consolidation, but it's not going to happen for uh, for the private developers unless it is a complete takeover. We spoke with the uh, CEO of. Uh, Azizi Developments. They are behind this uh, 12 billion there in Azizi Riviera in, uh, in Dubai. And he's not a big fan of consolidation for obvious reasons, uh, unless it is a complete uh, takeover of the, of the company and the assets. So that's where the consolidation is going forward. And uh, we we, ha- we had talk in the last few months a, a bit of a shake up in the the, the property sector. Um, Imar's thinking of of listing its own local property market as well. Uh, we've been covering this at the national, obviously closely. Property is a very popular sector with our readers, um, and and we and you know there's been a lot of reports coming out calling the bottom for the property sector in the UAE, saying, you know, now we've hit bottom, it's going to pick up. And actually, no, slight delay, maybe we'll hit bottom next quarter, so on and so forth. Was there any sense that the worst is over for us? You know, as you mentioned, from the fallout of lower oil prices and other geopolitical risks going on, can we see that there is maybe the beginning of a pickup in general? Well, if you look at the number of releases in the last 48 hours or, or slightly more, it's pretty much close to what we have seen in the entire 2016. If that's not good sentiment, I don't know what it is. Um, but have we touched the bottom yet? Uh, would there be an upside trajectory now? It's anybody's guess. Um, you know, there are so many economic dynamics that, has, that are at, at work here. So it's, it's, it's really hard to call it. And it's not my place, definitely, to, to call. But I can I can only speak about what no, I've seen. No, I want to pin you down to a call center no, so we get you back in six months and then say, you know, you got it right or you got it wrong. You know? Yeah, but come to think of it, if if you if you look at the mood on the floor, you look at uh, the enthusiasm of buyers, uh, I just indicates that, yes, there is this definite positive sentiment. You know, we, we, we spoke with uh, with Azizi, uh, CEO, and... and he said that his biggest clientele is uh, about 40% uh, GCC investors. And within them, 13% is uh, is UAE uh, locals, UAE nationals. And then comes India, uh, Indian and, and Pakistan is about 30%. And, and the rest of the nationality is making uh, the rest of the, the percentage. Definite interest from uh, the GCC, definite interest from the UAE nationals. And Indians and Pakistanis who have been the driver for, uh, I would say, the the engine of uh, investment in the in the property sector. So yes, there are some signs that is good, and all these launches, uh, about thirty thousand odd units that have been released, like over over the period of forty eight hours. Some of it will will be delivered on time. Some of it will not be delivered on time. About thirty thirty five percent probably will not come on time. So yeah, is it. It's gearing up towards 2020. It's it's the momentum that we are we are uh, Expo 2020. That is, we are we are we are gearing up to that. So yeah, so there are some uh, some good times ahead if you if you look at what has happened over the last three days. I mean, as you point out, delivery uh, launching projects is one thing. Delivery is another. We've seen over the last couple of years in the wake of the lower oil prices of how developers have held back 
um, supply to ensure that there isn't a widespread correction in the market, even though we've been in a downward trajectory. Obviously, there's been an impact on uh, construction companies as a result of that. You know, the payments are slower or, or projects have been on hold. And, and there's also been lower government spending in general. Um, you, you know, I know you've, you've covered um, here and elsewhere um, this sort of malaise of the construction sector. But we've seen we've get some comments and signs from that industry that things might be beginning to get better. And, and certainly if you've got these commitments from developers and buyers, then in the, sitting in the middle are the guys actually building these things. See, construction sector has really taken the pain, has really taken the, the brunt of it, uh, if, if I can say that. So look at Saudi Arabia, the biggest projects market in the GCC, UAE, second biggest market. There was a slowdown, of course. There was severe cash flow issues, which uh, which the these contracting companies had to face, and they had to to cut jobs to to keep the costs lower. But I think uh, they have taken a turn now for positive, uh, for the simple reason that we spoke with uh, with the largest contracting firm, one of the largest contracting firms in the world, China State, uh, and uh, their Middle East president and CEO uh, is very bullish. He thinks that his UAE order book is going to grow by 50%. If if you take his words, then I think there is definite sense of a turnaround for, uh, for the UAE's uh, construction sector in particular. Then you have Expo 2020. Preparations are in high gear. And 11 billion dirhams worth of uh, contracts to be let this year alone. It's, 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 it's a lot of activity that is happening. Plus, you look at the last two years, despite the headwinds, multi-billion dollar projects have been announced and construction has started on them. Look at Dubai, look at Abu Dhabi, and even Charger. So construction activity has picked up and I think the payment delays and everything that has caused the issues for uh, contractors kind of resolved at the moment. Samrat Khan, Company and Markets Editor for The National, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. More business extra in just a moment, but first allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. And extra time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on iTunes or find us as always at thenational.ae. You're listening to The National's Business Extra podcast from our newsroom in Abu Dhabi. We are talking about investor relations now. And it's very important for us to focus on why IR, as they call it, is critical for publicly listed companies. Uh, joining me to talk about investor relations, I'm very happy to say, are Alex McDonald Vitali, the chairman of the Middle East Investor Relations Association, and Dr. Ryan Lamond, managing director, head of asset management and wealth management at ADS Securities, and a MIRA board member. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. For the uninitiated out there, perhaps maybe we want to start at the very beginning. What exactly is investor relations, Alex? So I would define it as the function within a listed organization that is dedicated to providing investors and the broader market with clear, concise, and continually updated information on the story of the company. You have financial information in the public domain for regulatory reporting requirements. Obviously, um, the majority of companies do provide fairly in-depth information, but that's not enough for the investors. They have to have uh, an understanding of how the company operates, how its management runs the company, the caliber of management, and uh, over the long term, build a picture that for them provides them with the comfort that they need uh, to commit to longer term investment. And I'm, I'm teeing you up to kind of say, no, it isn't. But what, is it the same as sort of PR, yeah. financial communications? I, I would say that there's there's a fair amount of distinction between the traditional corporate comms and or PR functions, which uh, you could argue are there to sell the story, um, whereas investor relations just cannot do that. You very quickly lose faith in the market if that's the approach that you adopt. Uh, the, the story needs to be told in a very consistent and um, factual 
manner, referring continually to the information that is in the public domain, the financial reports and any other kind of disclosures that are released by the organization on, on, on a periodic basis, uh, allowing the investors to then go away and formulate their own view. So it tells the story and that story should sell itself. Dr. Ryan Lamont, uh, if I bring you in sort of from the buy side point of view, um, why is having an IR function at a publicly listed company important from your point of view? Well, in the developed world, it's a very, very important function because it's my portal towards the company that I would like or not to invest in. It is the function that channels all the information from inside the company and puts it into, as Alex rightly mentioned, into an actual story. Uh, for me to formulate an investment, formulate an investment thesis and invest uh, or not. Second, it's a two-way communication. I, as a large investor in the company, the investor relations officer allows me to transmit certain messages, certain potential objections, suggestions to the company. So he also channels in to the CFO, the CEO, the chairman, the head of operations, or whatever inside the company, certain messages that I have to convey as a very large investor. So think of it as, it's a negative word, but I'm going to use this still, as a bottleneck for information in and out of the company in a very organized, uh, uh, very professional, story-like uh, information. In the last few years, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about communication with investors, about what to tell them, partly to do with emerging market status, which we'll come to later. Um, but I remember being at a conference, an IR conference once in, in Riyadh, and, and one of the listed companies said, uh, how can we get people not to talk about us? How can we get people not to contact us? And there's very much that culture of like, I don't want to give information, whether it's for competition reasons, or I'm just worried about what will get out there, or it's just the culture. So, you know, how do you how do you manage that? I mean, what what is the incentive, I guess? out there for companies to say, you know, we're going to have a proper IR function? I'd say you probably wind this all the way back to the company starts and then it decides it wants to grow. It's established and it's beginning to develop and it's becoming relevant. And it feels that it has room to expand. You have two options. You can go to a bank and you can ask for a loan at high rates and you answer to the bank in terms of that continual growth story. Um, you service your loan. And if you like, the, the parallel that could be drawn against that is perhaps you, you distribute dividends if you're a listed company. Alternatively, you go to the market. And if you've built a good relationship with the investors and you've told a story over time, you've built up trust, you will get better pricing in the market when you go to, 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 to try and obtain that, that increasing capital. Um, clearly, the decision at that point is, do you want to be in the game or not? If you've chosen to go to the market, you've signed up automatically to a commitment to the market to provide it with clear, consistent uh, updates on, on your performance, uh, on the opportunity that the market presents to you. You'll bring to bear all the different elements of understanding around the macroeconomic story, the competitive and the peer group opportunity or challenges that, that exist therein, um, and the, the strength of the company to, to be able to deliver on that. All of these elements have got to be fed into the market. Um, to, to choose or to seek to disappear or become a quiet um, non-entity is, is effectively, I would say, corporate suicide in that respect, because you're saying, I'm going to go into the market, bid for uh, assistance or support, and then I'm going to just disappear. Uh, that is the first and, and most uh, almost efficient way to, to lose faith. Let me give you an analogy. Um, think of the company as a pop star, a very, very famous pop star, right? The more this pop star is, is visible, the more people, and good, obviously, in performing, the more people are going to buy albums of this pop star and the more he makes money. The flip side is that he has to go through signing autographs, uh, uh, selfies, pictures, interviews, etc. He's in the middle of the attention, but it comes with it. The more you're visible, you more, the more you attract attention, but the more you sell albums. So for a listed company to get more capital and get an increased share price and satisfy uh, uh, the principles who hold this share, well, you have to be visible and you have to transmit information. Let's not forget that for stock markets, the cornerstone of stock markets is information. Well, I mean, I, I, that's a great analogy because it, it speaks of the trade-off. So a company, an IR function is expensive, time-consuming, um, 
new as well, which is a factor. Um, and as I mentioned before, a, lo- a lot of this has come to light because in the last five years, there's been a discussion about the benefits of, of having emerging market status and mm-hmm. access to all those emerging market investors around the world, the billions and billions of fund flows that potentially were, were coming to the UAE and other markets in the region. And so uh, the, the discussion was, well, if we want these guys to come, then we have to change some of the uh, if you like the infrastructure of the market, better free float, um, you know, better uh, listing requirements, um, you know, all all kinds of things had to change uh, amongst capital markets here for that to happen. And with that came a higher level of transparency that was needed, a a more sophisticated level of communication. Um, They were used to doing an AGM every year, and that was it, right? (laughs) And then dividends were paid. A lot of the discussion was just, when am I getting my dividend check? You know, that was it really. And and once a year, investors and, 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 and the company would meet. Now, when you invite sophisticated international investors as a I mean, it, it opens up a whole new ball game, doesn't it, Alex? I, I think um, Dr. Ryan will have will have views on this as as an investor himself. I, and I think uh, you're absolutely right. Um, the story here is about participation on both sides. I think investors here have often been very complacent and quite passive, and they'll just say, "I'll buy into this company, and they'll wait for my dividend, and that's it." So it's not driven a sense of communication in that two-way context that today really is absolutely fundamental to any developed and established market. Um, I think MSCI has been an extraordinary catalyst for driving forward uh, layer upon layer of improvements uh, across both the market structure and the individual companies' abilities to step up to that uh, more active and and uh, I would say good volat- good volatility has come into it to to their to their um, stock as a result but also at a country level improving legislative structures um, the the uh, safety net that an investor would look for if they're coming in from outside the region and and it carries with it a series of, of uh, very in-depth um, structural analyses and, and adjustments that take maybe two to three years before actual announcement and, and inclusion in the index um, for the investors overseas to be satisfied that everything is, is as it should be, as far as it can be. Um, there's always an understanding and appreciation for uh, the risk is that, it, that is associated with it, anything new. And a frontier or an emerging market is by definition relatively new. It's, it's, it's not as tested as a more developed market would be. So there's a lot of, um, it's quite forgiving in that respect. And there are definitely, um, there's, there's room for, for continual improvement on that front. But it, at the outset, it's something that has immediately triggered, as you say, better standards of, of practice um, in terms of the company's interaction with the investor. Uh, I'll paraphrase Monty Python. Um, you know, what, have the, what has MSCI ever done for us? Because, I mean, you know, we wanted this and we, and we said, you know, this is going to be great. And as you point out, there are a lot of benefits. But uh, around the time of our emerging market status upgrade was also coinciding with the drop in oil prices. Emerging markets suddenly came out of vogue. And then all that liquidity that we expected to come in didn't quite materialize. I mean, you know, how does that affect you, um, you know, from the point of view of a, of a sort of buy side, you know, investor, uh, Ryan, you know, does that mean like, we've got all the, 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 the sort of burden of being emerging market now, but not necessarily all the benefits? Well, there, there are a few points to, to cover there. The first point is that let's not forget that 70% of the market cap is owned by retail individual investors here in the UAE, which is typical to any frontier or early emerging market. Second, 30% is owned by institutional investors, Okay, knowing that foreign institutional investors are very, very active. They constitute 40 to 60% of daily trading here in the UAE. Okay. Now, what happened with the MSCI upgrade? If we look at pre-2008 or pre-2010 even before the upgrade, most of these foreign institutional investors, who again constitute 40 to 60% of daily trading, were fast money managers or hedge funds. So they used to come in and get out within a week. They don't request information. They don't drill down into companies. They don't ask for financial statements. They really come in as a punt, opportunistically, technically buy into a dip and get out very, very quickly. 
The MSCI upgrade, what it did is it took them out. If you look at the foreign institutional investors today, they're not hedge funds anymore. They're more the long-term buy-and-hold investors, the fundamental ones. These are the ones who ask for financial statements. These are the ones who ring the investor relations officer to ask for information. So this is what the MSCI upgrade did. So if you look at me uh, a few years ago in London sending and managing a portfolio, if I wanted to invest into emerging markets in general, so I opened the investable universe that is authorized by the investment committee of the company I used to work with, the UE wouldn't have appeared. So I, as an emerging market portfolio manager, wouldn't have invested into the UE because it simply doesn't appear into my investable universe. It appears in my frontier investable universe, which I do not want. As soon as the upgrade took place, the UE suddenly appeared into my radar, into my investable universe, and I was a long-term institutional portfolio manager. So I started investing in the UE, or my peers started investing into the UE. And these are the quality investors that we want, the ones who buy and hold and stay and request information and help the market up its, its level. And so these are the people that actually require an investor relations function of each company, essentially. So there's a virtuous circle that we've created. And this is precisely why you see that the investor relations profession has developed quite quickly since the upgrade took place or a little bit before, because the investors are different today. These are investors who are not hedge funds. These are investors who actually want information before they invest into the company. And I like that word you use, profession, because that is, it's very key. It's become a profession here. Yes. It's not something, it used to be, you know, one person was tasked with phoning all the shareholders, come to the AGM, did you get your dividend check or would take the phone calls? But Alex, you've seen that actually there's a proper career path now. I would say actually that that's a global um, development. It's not just here. I think if you look at where the US was 10 years ago, where the UK was perhaps in, in, the, in the last eight to six years, um, and definitely where the MENA region is today and in, in the, the, this fast forward of the last couple of years, it's shifted from being a function, as you say, to now really becoming a profession. And there's a lot of research that's going on and some very interesting presentations is, is from industry experts in the UK and the US in particular that are now exploring the role of investor relations as a profession and the career path that that uh, presents as an opportunity for um, anyone deciding to go into that particular role, um, develop it over time, have access to senior management and ultimately board level uh, uh, directorship and potentially accede to those positions themselves uh, in, in the latter part of their careers. And it's a, it's a function that is, I think, without question now considered to be a strategic management function. Um, but it is, I would couch it in terms of a, a properly emerging profession. And, and that function reports to the CFO typically as a sort of best standards? Yes and no. Uh, I have a personal view on that one. Uh, I think in many companies, uh, and I'm talking from experience with uh, medium to very large size organizations and observing industry commentary around this and feedback from investor relations officers from around the world, I would say that the, the view from the investor is that the IR officer is a person who, as Dr. Ryan quite rightly mentioned before, manages a two-way communication uh, process, which allows for the investors to feed information back into the company, providing insights and understanding of the market's view of how the company is performing to management and the board, as well as continually pumping out that story and updating the market on, on progress and developments. Occasionally, C-suite don't really get that. And I've seen CFOs who will pull back quite aggressively from a proactive investor engagement agenda uh, and possibly even stifle to a certain extent the amount of interaction and, and uh, access that they give to the broader investor community. They might even choose to con constrict the amount of uh, shareholder participation to more institutional investors who become the majority shareholders, which flattens their volatility in a negative way uh, over time and, and yet provides them with a very comfortable and manageable structure. So, yes, they can report to the CFO. In many companies, that works very well. The CFO has to be happy to deal with investors 
um, it should definitely have access to the CEO. There has to be a collaborative relationship there, and they have to be able to both speak to the CEO and ensure that he or she is committed to um, regular engagement with the market. But I think there needs to be a very open and uh, accessible channel of communication also with the board. Uh, if I were to choose today where I would rather report into, I would prefer the board. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> so it should be above It should be above C-suite, like the IR function should report to the board? Absolutely. A chief executive officer, he is an executive, he is a technical person who is a specialist in managing a company that works in a very specific sector or field. This does not mean that he is good at communication. We have seen several companies who are on the brink of failure because of a wrong message said by the CEO. This should not happen. We've seen this in the region and we've seen it in other parts of the world. Uh, so that is why I think the IRO should report to the principals or the representatives of the principals, and in this case, the, the board of directors. The board of directors represents the shareholders, so the owners of the company. So in case there is sort of a clash in the message or the communication, this should be reported by the RO to the board. This is interesting because, I, I mean, in the discussion, and obviously you guys are close to the discussion of IR in this region, but for me that's a new element because a couple of years ago it was all about getting CEO buy-in. But it seems we've, we've, we've decided that that's maybe not the, the perfect course because company by company, there was really dependent on who the CEO was, whether they were actually interested in IR. Often they would just be keen to manage relationship with the chairman or the board or the principal shareholder. A lot of companies in this region, for those who may not be fully aware, tend to have one large shareholder, sometimes a government-related entity, and the, the, all the focus would be would be there rather than, than on growing the shareholder base, which is one of the, the, the principal aims of a good IR function. So I like that, that now the, the, the conversation has broadened out to say, actually, wait a minute, shouldn't really matter who the CEO or CFO is. It should be a function that actually deals with, as you said, the representative of the owners. Yeah. I'll pick up on two points there. I think you would grow and diversify the shareholder base because that's key. Because over time, if one given group of investors decide to follow herd mentality, you're stuck. You need to have a well-diversified shareholder base. It's important. Um, but going back to the point of, of whether your CEO is, is uh, interested in investor relations, I would actually rephrase that as, is he interested in investors? Is he interested in the market's view of how he's or his company are doing? And to, to Brian's point, I think one of the problems we have is short-termism is always a concern, especially in developed markets at C-suite level. Very often you have a CEO or a CFO in, in a company um, given a mandate for maybe three to maximum five years. That can be only just enough time for them to do either a really good job or a really bad job. And they walk away, move on to their next role, and the company's left either in good shape or high and dry. The board, however, generally has a more objective and a slightly separated uh, view of how the company's performing and how it should um, be rated and valued in the market and and possibly a slightly more open lens, if you like, to, to the way in which uh, the investors view their overall performance. There was some legislation introduced uh, recently, uh, came into effect last year, that every company must have an IR officer. Now, that's obviously been part of the overall evolution of, of the discussion we're having. But uh, going back to the point of it being profession now, how important has that been in institutionalizing the idea that IR is of importance. Dr. Ryan will have a view on this as well because <laughs> he was intimately involved back in his previous role. Um, but I would say fundamentally this was based on, on two key elements from my perspective. Um, I was delighted to be part of the project and, and honored to have been invited to join. And at the time, the real concern was post the financial crisis and the, the return to stability across the markets globally. Uh, the question was being asked, why are we not seeing investment coming into the GCC and the UAE in particular, um, and then even going back out again? So we did a bit of research and we realized that in, in many instances, an institution investor from overseas would come meet with a company, they would be given access to C-suite, uh, and the first round of discussions would be very productive. They'd go back home, they'd speak to their chief uh, um, investment officer and get approval for a certain commitment to the company's uh, stock. 
Fast forward to six or 12 months later, they are required by local regulation to fulfill due diligence uh, um, reviews. And part of that is meeting with the executives. So they'd come back out and they'd try to see C-suite again, be that CEO, CFO, or at the very least an investor relations officer, and nobody would be there. And they'd feel frustrated and let down and obviously, you know, exasperated uh, in, in short order because going back home and saying, I didn't get to see anyone, all I've got is what's in the public domain, would not be enough for the review process. And they would have to withdraw their investment. To a certain extent, it's a bit like the MSCI story. If you've gone out and you've obtained that investment, to then lose it is worse than not having it in the first place. And the second part was that the design of this piece of regulation was given that it's part of the corporate governance uh, law, it's not a piece of law in itself. It's it's a supplement to that which can evolve over time. So it's got inbuilt flexibility, which is brilliant, and is designed to enable companies here. Um, where we spoke to some of the corporates, their real concern was, we're not sure that we are allowed to actually speak to people outside the context of the markets or uh, our own, you know, uh, uh, closest stakeholders. Uh, and we needed to provide them with a tool that would f make them feel that not only were they permitted to, but they actually should produce a clear and concise story and, and engage on a regular basis. And, and you were there, uh, Ryan, in terms of the uh, development of this important legislation. And what, I mean, what were the, the real factors behind saying we need a law here? To, to make sure that each company has an IR function? Was it part of education and persuading companies to, to put this effort in? I just have to disclose that I'm very biased regarding this piece of legislation because I was the project manager who drafted it while I was with the Securities and Commodities Authority. Uh, so if you look at the liquidity across all of the listed companies in the UE, you'll see that you have a small bunch that is very, very liquid, trades every day with big volumes, and then you have a big group of companies that almost never trade. Now, why these companies are completely illiquid, there are several reasons to that. One of these reasons is that they do not have an investor relations function. They do not communicate. So when I, as an investor, I am interested in one of these illiquid companies, however, I don't have access to any information about this company, then I will simply not invest. So there were two approaches. The first one is wait for them to be ready incite them to communicate, or since the train is going quite fast, the competition is quite fast across the exchanges, is to simply enable them by making it mandatory for them to have investor relations uh, function and encourage them to communicate with investors to attract them. This would normalize liquidity across all of the listed companies here at the UE. So we don't have a bunch that is very liquid and then another part that is completely illiquid. So that's one of the reasons why this regulation was very important, to help the local markets have more breadth and depth in their path towards becoming developed markets. It's important to have that breadth and depth because, you know, uh, I remember during the time of the, the before the financial crisis, there were two or three stocks that everyone wanted to get into, right? I mean, you, you know, we, we can mention the Imars of this world. Um, but, you know, obviously we have a much broader exchange in the UAE and the wider region as well. There's a lot of very interesting companies. And just because they aren't, they, are, they were at the time, didn't have that IR function or that, that culture to talk, it was actually not really representing the region properly. Yes, and, and, you know, now if we're getting into a period of time where there are a lot of exciting transactions coming, I mean, Saudi Aramco, yes. everyone's looking at that. Uh, Imar is going to list the UAE property subsidiary. Adnox is going to list the unit um, coming up in the next uh, 12 months. So we're going to have that focus again of some very exciting opportunities. And again, much like the emerging market status upgrade, we don't want to miss this opportunity. And, and like you were saying, Alex, we don't want to lose it either, no. right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I think the word exciting is, is something I, I <laughs> probably overuse, but I feel really genuinely excited about the developments that are coming out, out of the region. And not just within the GCC, I would look broadly across the Middle East and the North Africa markets. Um, there's a lot of effort being made to restructure the exchanges. Um, in many instances, they're privatizing those exchanges and, and listing them in their own right the way, for example, the DFM and, and ADX have been, um, you're seeing uh, proactive 
engagement from the exchanges. And this is partly why we signed the MOUs and renewed our agreements with them across the region to encourage them and to ensure that they understand we're there as a partner to support the development of investor relations and those standards, those international standards um, as, as they move forward. And, and there's a real feeling that we're ready now to move to the next phase of growth. The companies that are coming out of the region, as you say, some of them are really interesting. Um, there's some, uh, I, I would say to a certain extent, even though it, it's couched as a frontier or an emerging market, this is a region that is often an incubator of new ideas. Um, Uber, a successful international organization, um, going through extraordinary changes as it grows, is broadly funded in, in many respects by uh, large Saudi interests. Um, there's interest coming from this region to invest out into the world at large, and they're getting used to how their requirements for uh, greater transparency and, and information and how those companies overseas behave uh, as a standard. Uh, bringing that back home when they then talk as investors within their own region and to their own companies about the development of those standards. They're able to do it with, with more uh, of an informed view now. Um, when, uh, Dr. Ryan, I'll bring you in on this. I, I just wanted to, to, to mention, to bring back a little bit, uh, a few words about the association, the Middle East Investor Relations Association. So it represents a number of companies who have a very mature investor relations function or profession, right? So Mira, when the regulator worked on this initiative to make mandatory having investor relations, it wouldn't have happened without Mira. So it's a group of companies who enjoy lots of liquidity on their stocks, thanks to a very mature investor relations function, who helped smaller companies who do not have an investor relations function to develop it through this regulation to share the liquidity on the market for a common good, which are markets being upgraded to developed markets. So this shows you how it's sort of a private and public collaboration for a global good. Uh, does it almost, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is it a case of, you know, you you need everybody to be up to a certain standard? Otherwise, the, the if you're a pioneer, you're not necessarily getting the most out of it. Um, if, the, if the whole market isn't investable, then you're going to be losing a portion of that investment. Precisely. So... You mentioned the names of a few blue chip companies here in the in the UE. These have top-notch investor relations functions or professions. Uh, these companies could say, you know what? I'm enjoying my liquidity. I'm doing very well. I don't care about anyone else anyone else. But no, it's not the case, as you rightly mentioned. They need the whole ecosystem to go up a notch. Well, look, I'm going to mention these these in stories, uh, not because I want to single them out, but just to talk about some of the realities of this, which is, you know, in the last sort of couple of years, you know, there have been question marks about communication, effective communication. We've had Arab tech, for example, very much in the spotlight. Uh, more recently, there was a, a sort of mooted Shua GFH merger that didn't happen. And so what happens, a lot of questions come up from investors, both here and outside. And they say, well, you know, if I'm hearing about that and I'm not sure what's going on, then can I taint the whole market with that? So everybody really has a responsibility to maintain, you know, that we are communicating effectively. So it really is, it, when we talk about investor relations, it's opening the door to all kinds of things like governance, transparency, mm -hmm. communication. So it's it's not just about one thing, but is a sort of broader cultural question of what do we want our markets to look like? I'd say there are three key participants in the success of a capital market. You've got the companies, the exchanges, and the investors themselves. The analysts, especially the, the institutional analysts, um, the more mature, more sophisticated uh, experts in uh, company um, performance and, and development, have a key role to play to feed back into the market at company level through the investor relations officers, through their meetings with C-suite, in the reports that they publish, uh, in the views that they, they share with, with the, the, the market at large, and also in communication to the exchanges to ensure that there's a continual sense of participation, activity, and feedback that is generating positive improvements to, to their activities. 
Well, look, I want to. Uh, it's been a great conversation, and uh, I just want to say that you you you're not going to stop talking about it because next week there's the annual uh, Mira Conference and Awards, which is going to be in Dubai, and and essentially dozens of uh, listed companies from around the region, not just the UAE, but as, as you said, the Middle East Investor Range Society is very much broad uh, grouping of companies from other countries as well that are interested in this subject. They're going to be in Dubai, so a lot of focus next week is going to be on where we are in IR and where we're going to be. Um, you guys offer any insight on sort of what you what you think are likely to be the big topics the big the big areas that people are going to want to get together and discuss we have uh, an exciting announcement uh, of a piece of a big piece of analysis on the investor relations community uh, in the Middle East this year we're delighted to be able to welcome uh, in excess of 250 to hopefully 300 delegates this year um, it's a conference that is the uh, flagship event for Mira and I would say the investor relations community across the region. But it's fundamentally an opportunity for the sharing of best practice, discussions around the latest trends and challenges that are facing companies and the IR function uh, or profession, as we've said. And the exchanges to be a partner in that, most of them will be present as they have been in the last few years in some form or other. And uh, also some of the analysts and investors in the region who really relish the opportunity to both meet with some of those investor relations officers in an informal context, as well as hear the views and and or participate themselves in some of the panels and discussions that we present on the day. Um, It's very much about the development of the role of of the profession of investor relations um, and and looking forward to how the the impact of uh, Saudi Arabia, the opening of the Tadawal, as well as inclusion in MSCI for now three principal companies in the GCC is having a ripple effect across the region. And in general terms, a sense that the role of IR is now firmly established within the Middle East and North African region and is um, growing rapidly as the markets themselves uh, develop and, and become more, more and more sophisticated. Uh, Ryan Lamont, can I ask you, um, how, how important is it that investors and publicly listed companies and exchanges and regulators get together for these kind of event, events in this region? Is it just a, you know, a matter of getting together for a little bit of a, you know, a chatter and a cup of coffee? Or is there really something tangible to be got out of it? No, no, it's it's a very important conference. As you rightly mentioned uh, a bit earlier about uh, the common message that listed companies should have, investor relations is about communication. It's about information. So we need to standardize this way of communication. If it's not standardized, each IRO will communicate in a specific way and the market will become fragmented from an information perspective. This conference is extremely important to sit around the table and think how can we standardize the profession of investor relations. This was done for the finance profession. The CFA, for example, where financial analysts today, they have a very specific way of working that is unified and standardized. This should happen also for the investor relations uh, functional profession. And this is how this conference helps to do it. We have um, uh, companies coming from the Levant, from uh, North Africa, from the GCC, and we even have uh, attendees from, from Europe. So we share our views. We sometimes debate, argue about things, but at the end of the day, we agree this should be the way to work and the way forward for investor relations. The thing I love about IR is it's more a science than an art. Gentlemen, Alex McDonald-Vitale, Chairman of the Middle East Investor Relations Association, and Dr. Ryan Lamont from ADS Securities, thanks for being with me today. Thank, Thank you, you for having much. us. I'm Mustafa Rawi, and this was the Business Extra podcast. You can read, listen, and watch our fuller coverage on thenational.ae as always. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to this and our other shows on iTunes. All that's left is to thank our producer, Kevin Jeffers, and please do join us again next week.